Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. Today on the programme, we'll be joined later on by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Leon Patel alongside me. Leon is a director at Global Grooves, an artist-led carnival arts organisation based in the northwest of England. He also holds directorships at a range of other organisations. Um, Leon, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. You're welcome. Great to be here. It's a real pleasure having you with us as well, Leon. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time at the moment in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your businesses. Sure, yeah. Well, it's been a very, very challenging time as uh, you know most businesses are, are going through at the moment. Um, our main kind of activity is um, performances, workshops, and, and activities with commu- the community. So obviously the lockdown has meant that it's very, very difficult for us to engage with the public and our audiences as we normally would do. So when the lockdown happened, essentially all of our work, which is in festivals, in education, um, in outdoor events, uh, disappeared uh, overnight. So that's meant that we've had uh, quite a struggle to keep afloat because all of our earned income and all of our potential sort of avenues for business are, are, are no longer available to us. That said, um, one of the reasons that Global Grooves kind of exists is to uh, connect with communities. So we brought together our artist team um and our management team to look at ways we could still continue to engage with the public and developed a few different projects that allowed us to do that, both via digital, but also uh, other ways of connecting um, by sending resources out by post to um, communities and families that might not have access to the digital resources. So it's been an interesting time for us. We've had to kind of balance the survival of the business and, and the income dis- disappearing as a result of the lockdown and, 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 and of COVID. But at the same time, we've needed to make sure that we're still offering services to communities and families and, and members of the public that might need kind of creative intervention in their lives. So we've had to mm. work out ways of continuing to operate, even though we've got very limited resources and ways to do that. And what do you think the long-term effect of this on your line of work is going to be? Because particularly when it comes to the event side of things, we're hearing a lot of talk about remote delivery being one of the big things in future. And given that you're involved very much in carnival arts, of course, the ability for outdoor events to take place is going to be quite important for the likes of yourselves. Yes, um, I think it's going to be quite a long time until we get back to normal. In, In many ways, we're fairly lucky in the fact that, that we work outdoors, which makes sort of socially distanced events a little bit easier to put on. And things are starting to gradually kind of pick up and festivals and town centres and, and, and events are starting to talk about how they might start to bring events back online. But we know that it's going to be a slow process. Um, audience numbers 
uh, going to be smaller and the processes involved are going to mean that it's much more difficult to deliver those types of events. And one thing that's that's going to impact us particularly, I think, which is a little bit different to arts organisations that are based in more in venues, is that most of our events are free to the public, which means that they're not ticketed. So they kind of rely on either private companies, festival organisations, or perhaps local area authorities to uh, subsidise that work so it's available for the public to, to view and, and participate in. So even if we had smaller um, audiences, th- th- there aren't actually any ticket sales that we can make. So we're kind of having to rely on um, partners to, to raise those funds. And, and at the moment, that's, that's a really tricky kind of um, job to do with a lot of the public funding being moved over to um, kind of the immediate response to COVID. Uh, local area authorities having real challenges with their budgets and private companies that might hold festivals and events that have been impacted as well. So I think it's going to take a long time for us to get back on track. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult for the artists in particular, I think, because they're creative people that are used to developing pieces of work um, all the time. And all of a sudden, it's making it very, very, um, it's very difficult for them to find that kind of creative outlet. Um, that said, we are doing quite a lot around digital. So we've got a lot of training and events that are available to the local community online. And we also developed a program called Missing Patch, which was about sending out resources to create um, some carnival art in the form of um, batik patches on silk that families and, and uh, isolated people and artists have been involved with. And, and they have been creating these pieces of work with resource packs that we've sent out. They're being sent back to us that will be created into a giant hot air balloon, which will go out on the streets when it's safe to do so. So we're still keeping active, but it's, it's tricky. And in terms of people management, which is a very important facet of leadership, of course, how has it been for you in terms of working with your colleagues during this time and also those artists as well? Because I can imagine you've had to have one or two sort of quite difficult conversations with um, some people. Yes, um, it's it's been a challenge. Um, at the moment, we've been quite lucky in that we've had some projects that have been able to continue during the lockdown. For example, a heritage research uh, project that we're doing on our carnival art space, which is an old mill, so that work's continued, and we've we've, we've worked with our kind of publicly funded participatory events. Of, we have been able to continue them or defer them to later. So it's been more about supporting our workforce to be able to work under these really unusual circumstances, and also finding really really creative ways to continue to deliver some of those participatory projects that we've been. Been, been tasked with. Um, however, when it depended on how long these things last, it, it may need to be difficult conversations in the future. And we're all working really, really hard to try and make sure that we raise the resources that we need. And um, the recent government kind of investment into arts and culture has been really, really welcome. And we hope we'll be able to access some of that. But 
it's really for us been about trying to find new ways to work and new ways to engage audiences so that we can continue to deliver the projects that we have been doing. For, for, for a lot of our team, that's been okay, and they've found that quite an interesting process and learned new skills along the way. Other members of our team who are maybe based further away feel a little bit more kind of isolated from the organisation. And because we're kind of a arts organisation, it's all about participation. Um, it's very unusual for us not to be together and to be creative and to be in, in a space create, making things happen. Mm. So it's been hard to sort of recreate that, that energy and that buzz that we get when we're working in our studio. I suppose certainly that that leadership from a distance almost and being creative from afar is a little bit of a challenge that you've had to adjust to, as you rightly say there, Leon. Um, Another interesting thing as well that I've seen from various different business leaders from all walks of life um, who've been on this uh, show before is that every time I ask them about what they feel a leader's role is, they always say that a leader's role is to inspire people when you're running a business. Now, We've seen that a lot during the COVID-19 period that employees are looking to their executives, managers and directors for a little bit of guidance, a bit of reassurance and inspiration during a time like this. And that can make the leadership position feel like a very lonely place when you're constantly giving out all of that reassurance, keeping the communication channels open. And yet there's nobody above you to refer to because you're the one who's ultimately running the show. So when you are in that position... When you do need a little bit of inspiration for yourself, where is it that you go looking for it? It's an interesting question. Um, I think we're quite lucky because within our board, um, I get quite a lot of support from, 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 from the other directors, from the non-executive directors, and also our kind of senior management team. Really, the structure of our organisation is quite flat, so it's, it's kind of not always looking at the organization as a hierarchy and um, we, we're very aware of the skills that we have within our organization and, and also the skills that individuals don't have and we've got such a complementary team that I think some of that weight is, is shared um, but I mean I, I spent a lot of time talking to other organizations talking to other artists and um, when the lockdown happened we were very very aware that um, smaller organisations and freelance artists and freelance um, workers in our sector were probably the ones that needed the most support. So we put together a support package led by our organisation to help um, those individuals and those those groups to raise resources and raise funding to, to continue to operate because we were very, very aware that our wider workforce, being large and freelance, um, needed that support otherwise when we come out the other side of this we won't have a workforce to work with so by working with those other organizations we also discovered that they were doing some really really innovative and really inspiring things on the ground with communities and with artists that that have influenced our work so i think one of the positives that covid's brought to the art sector particularly is that people have started to communicate and collaborate and work in partnership more than ever. And that new kind of relationship that's been made has allowed us all to step back a little, sort of look at each other's work and be inspired by that and find new ways of working together. So although the weight has been quite heavy on my shoulders to keep the organisation afloat, there's been lots of 
kind of inspiration around me that that's helped me to kind of get through it. And thinking about the future now, Leon, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, we know over the next 12 to 18 months we'll have to adjust to a new normal way of living and working as we hopefully shake off the shackles of COVID-19 uh, for good. But during that period of time, which is going to be a challenge, what do you think is next for you, for Global Grooves and for the other businesses you're involved in? And what are you really hoping to achieve in that time? I think... Um the first kind of priority for us is to make sure that we've got the resources to continue to operate. <clears throat> and we are looking in the fact that there is support out there and that we've been able to access as a national portfolio organization and, and, and as a kind of established creative organization in our area. So that's been, been lucky. But in the future, <clears throat> we are going to have to find ways of adapting our, our work um, and we've already started to look at new ways in which we can present uh, our work to audiences in a, in a safe and kind of COVID-secure way. And the sector sort of nationally is working very, very hard on kind of ways in which we can um, monitor the risk and also find methods in which to continue to operate in. So, so that's one thing that we're working very hard on at the moment is making sure that we get that just right. And because a lot of our work is in the outdoors, it does give us some interesting opportunities that, that are available to us. And additionally, um, during the, the, the lockdown and, and this, this um, next few, well, next 12 months, we're actually developing a capital programme. So we're developing the Carnival Arts Centre for the north of England, which is going to be in Thameside. Um, so that capital programme is, is running while we're all working from home. So there's a big job to do there. And we think when we come out the other side of the capital programme, we've also adapted our kind of performance and workshop offer to, to work within the new normal. Um, we'll almost be a, a, a kind of shiny new organisation coming out the other side of it. Certainly sounds like there's plenty to get stuck into um, over the uh, the next uh, few months for sure, Leon. And I really, really hope there's some positive news to uh, share on that front over the next few months. And, you know, given just how informative and exciting it's been having you join us today, I think it would be great to catch up and have you back on the show with us in future just to see how things are coming along. Yeah, I'd be delighted. I'd certainly welcome that. It's been a real pleasure for me to welcome you onto the uh, the programme today, Leon. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you with us. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do please continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Thanks very much, Ethan. I was speaking on today's programme to Leon Patel, Director at Global Grooves. And for all of those tuning in today as well, do continue to look after yourselves and others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders Council Chairman. Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, having been elevated to the uh, the House in uh, 2015. Um, but most 
importantly and most renowned in fact, he made a career for himself holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common 
a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. 
Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.